is going to be based on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 1 through 10. So let's take a look at that together. Let me read this passage on our behalf. Uh, this is God's word. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Wanted to take this time to welcome a newcomer, Jonathan Krauss. I believe he's sitting in the back to the right. If we could welcome him, Cornerstone family. Welcome. Glad you can join us this morning. You know, the Lord has really been ministering to me this morning, uh, even from 9 a.m. till now. And Thank you to Pastor Paul for the call to worship. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Sam, for the prayer. Uh, he's doing a work in me. Um, and so let us actually jump right into our text this morning. So right in between this wonderfully, beautifully written book of 2 Corinthians, we have right smack dab in the middle this gem of a passage. And Paul is appealing to these believers in Corinth, and he's trying to show them that he's legit, the legitimacy of his apostolic authority to them, because they actually questioned him many times, and in this case, they said he has suffered too much to be a worthy representative of Jesus. And so we see the hardships of Paul, and he's going through all of this to show his authenticity and his genuineness and his love to them. And he's showing you and me this morning that ministry is worth it. And so that's my great task for us this morning, is to tell you that your Christian journey is worth it. Won't you join with me in prayer? This is the most important part of the message. I cannot do it without you, God. 
We cannot do anything without you, God. Sometimes, many times, we believe that lie that we can. But won't you show us, humble us, remind us that your mercies are new every morning. And that is what gives us life. So many times in life, we search after so many things, other things that do not satisfy, and we keep chasing. But we know that in the end, there is only one that does. Once you remind us of that this morning, once you speak into the hearts of those who are new or those who have been in this sanctuary for a long time and are running on fumes, remind us that you sustain us that you guide us and you help us. Let it not be my words, but it let it be yours. Thank you for this privilege. If anything, it's more than that. It's more than an honor to be able to preach your word. Thank you. I hope that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here is something I want to share with you. Here's a, a freebie. It's an axiom. A spiritual life that is without direction and reflection is destined to fail. I'll say that again. A spiritual life that is without direction and reflection is destined to fail. I want to you to imagine sort of this scenario with me. You find yourself driving down this single long road in the desert. And you have been told that eventually you will reach your destination, but you aren't told when you'll get there. And so you just drive mindlessly, endlessly, hours upon hours, night and day. And then this seed of doubt starts to come into your heart where you question yourself, where am I going? Where am I right now? You look around, all of you, and everything just looks the same. You're in the desert. And now, to your shock and fear-inducing anxiety, you realize you are lost. And you look at your fuel gauge and you see that ticker is actually getting really close to the letter E. You're running out of gas. Have you ever run out of gas before? I have. It is the strangest feeling. You know, you push down on that accelerator and then you hear the engine sputter and then you have nothing. You just start gliding and then you got to pull over to the side of the road. So not only are you lost, you have run out of gas. A pastor friend of mine once told me he has a friend and his son drives 18-wheelers, these huge trucks for a living. And he said one of the most perplexing things is he'll see gas trucks hauling gallons upon gallons upon gallons of gas and they are stranded on the side of the road because they themselves have run out of gas. Do you kind of see where I'm going with this? Maybe some of us this morning know that feeling. You're not just any vehicle, you are a gas truck 
and people are depending on you to get them their gas. So you can't let up, but you're running on fumes. You're lost, and now you feel guilty because people are depending on you. So you are left discouraged, confused, depressed, burnt out. And a question you are asking yourself in the deep reaches of your heart, is it worth it? Is this Christian life worth it? Some of you may be new to faith, and you are finally understanding this is a really hard life. Some of you may be more seasoned. You've been going through so many years and serving, and you are entering into a season of discouragement, or you already have been, and you're asking yourself, is it worth it? And I'm here to tell you, it is. The Christian journey is worth it. Why? Because the time of salvation is here. Here's three points for you this morning. The first is that the Christian journey requires a roadmap. The second is that the Christian journey is filled with unforeseen distractions that will veer you from your destination. And the third, the Christian journey is worth it because the time of salvation is here. So here's this first point. The Christian journey requires a roadmap. Here's a rhetorical question for you. What is the greatest invention known to man in recent memory? What is it? Most people would say this, but I would venture to say it's more specific. It's actually what is contained in that. You get into your car, and you're trying to go to a place that you have never been, how do you get there? You go to Google Maps, you go to Waze, you go to whatever app you particularly use, and it's amazing because it can tell you exactly where you are, how far you need to go, your estimated time of arrival, it will account for delays, it will account for construction, it will even show you if there's a speed camera or police nearby. And if you want to change your mind, you can instantaneously change your destination. Remarkable. I think we take this for granted. But in the history of the world, this is a recent development. Because shortly before that, for a time period, I remember when I was in high school, I felt so cool because I had a state-of-the-art Garmin GPS, where it was just a GPS. You would take it out of your glove compartment, put it on your dashboard, and it would take some time to load up, but it got the job done. It was awesome. But even that was a recent development because shortly before that, if, and I'm just guesstimating, you are over the age of 35 in this congregation, how did you navigate to a certain place? You went on your computer at home, and you printed out directions on MapQuest, where it gave you palatable, easy-to-understand directions. 0.5 miles, you take a left. Two miles down, you take a right. The only issue is, if you got lost, if you made a wrong turn, you didn't know where you were in relation to those directions. 
But even that was a short-lived invention because before that, you had what was called just a map. I remember my family taking road trips, and you had this huge map of Virginia or of Maryland in your glove compartment, or in my particular case, in that back pocket in the driver's seat. And my dad had to pull over to the side of the road with the two other greatest inventions known to man, the pen and the highlighter. And we had to figure out where we were and how to get to where we wanted to go. I still remember so many arguments my parents having. Oh, honey, you missed the turn. You should have gone there. And then my dad acknowledging, never admitting he was wrong, but just like, yeah, we should have, we should have turned left 20 miles ago. So going back. Now, where am I going with this? Where am I going with this illustration? Much like in the same way, our spiritual lives occasionally need us to stop, pull over, and look at our maps. But in an age where things are so convenient, in an age of social media, it's easy for us to get this feeling that we have this sense of direction without even knowing where we really are going. Our phones have made us connected to the world, but they have made us detached from reality. How many hours can you spend on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok even? And after you're done watching it, not even process all the things that you just took in. When we get the sense of being so-called lost in life, we seek for a quick escape as soon as that uneasiness, that boredom sets in. And that leads us down some windy roads. We love this. We need this. But I'm here to tell you that rarely do we find time to stop, pull over, and ask ourselves, where am I? Where am I going? You see, I believe the Apostle Paul asked himself this many times as he's literally writing these letters. He had to recollect all the things that he had gone through, and there's just something about sitting down, taking a pen, and then putting it to paper. There's just something about journaling. And the Apostle Paul is chronicling his life, and he's going through all the things, I'm sure, in his memory bank. And that first time he had met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he said, you must suffer for my name. And all the events, all the trials that he had up until this point, he is recollecting. Maybe the Apostle Paul's journey to faith is very different from you. When you first became a Christian, you were maybe at a retreat, you were crying, it was emotional, you loved the Lord, it was genuine, and you thought, man, this is great, this has to be great all the time, it's so easy, and then you finally get this humbling realization, wow, actually, this is not that easy, it's pretty hard, and then you go through enough hardships in your life and you realize, wow, this is pretty intense, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, and then finally... You get to the end of the rear rope and you ask, is it worth it? It'd be so much easier if I just did something else. It's actually harder to be a Christian. Does this sound familiar to you? I'm going to tell you that it's actually harder. Don't worry. 
It gets worse. Our second point. You will be filled with unforeseen distractions that will veer you from your destination. There will be many things. And what I call these things are overemphasized detours. So I came up actually with more of a comprehensive list. But for the sake of time that we are in the sanctuary today, I whittle it down to two things that I think that we all generally struggle with. And so if you could sort of follow with me, here's the first. I call this the overemphasis on the anti-climax of life. Made sounds of verbose, a little confusing, but I, I will repeat, I will explain the overemphasis on the anti-climax of life, or what I like to deem it, a necessary dryness or a boredom. There's this wonderful book written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it is very interesting because it is this account of these two demons that are corresponding to one another, strategizing how they can take people and bring them into the kingdom of hell. So you have this uncle named Screwtape, and you have his nephew named Wormwood. And Wormwood is assigned to this man who now becomes a believer. And Screwtape writes in response to this new development, and he says this, Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anti-climax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman or as a Christian. The enemy, he re they refer to the enemy, God as the enemy, allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and they begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. What is he saying? He is saying that when you start something new, when you start something that you're very passionate about, you are inspired, you are emotional, and it is great. But if we live long in this world, we know that that feeling does not really last that long. It has this anti-climax. And I could use a lot of examples to share with you this. You know, in the beginning of the year, it's usually in the beginning of the year, you make this new resolution. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray I'm going to start from Genesis. It's awesome. I'm going to get to Exodus. And then you get to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're like, ah, oh, this is not that interesting. What about you trying to get into shape? You sign up for the gym in the beginning of the year in January. You're really disciplined. You go every day. You're eating great. But sometime... Midway through February, if you last that long, maybe in a March, say, I, I don't really want to go anymore. I'm too tired. If we've ever been to a retreat, you know that on the last night you reach this high, you're crying 
with all the people you've now reconciled with. And it's great. You love the Lord. You're praising him. But then you get them back home, back to life, back to reality. You know what we do to address this as people? And it comes very naturally to us. We just jump from desire to desire, endlessly searching, endlessly grasping at whatever's new, whatever's next, just to get rid of that feeling. As John Piper says it, we are, our hearts are desire factories. They will never be satisfied. Your choices are always directed by your desires. Satan capitalizes on this. In that subtle, sweet whisper, as you feel that mundaneness and boringness, he'll tell you, this is an unnatural feeling. You got to look for something else. On to the next. But the godly remedy, and I'm sure most of you don't want to hear this, is to build discipline through the mundaneness, through the boredom, through the dryness. Later, screw tape writes to his nephew, and he says, if once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion, and therefore, they are much harder to tempt. That's extremely insightful. Because when you start to do things, when you don't want to do it, after some time, you'll find that you enjoy doing it. So sometimes, you and I just have to push through. But that can be problematic as well, because here's a second. We have not only an overemphasis on our anti-climax, but we have an overemphasis on our works. This is the most dangerous one, because this is the most subtle, and this is the most natural. This fits to our disposition. You know, the sad reality, the truth is, in a church context, it is always just a few people who are doing the most work. Just to be completely real here. And it is those few people who are on the fast lane to being burnt out. And they might be asked to them, why are you doing all this? And they'll say, maybe in the beginning, no one else is doing it, so I'll do it with enthusiasm. But then somewhere along the way, that Joyous labor becomes bitter resentment, and then it becomes toxic. And then you say in your heart, no one else is doing anything. I'm the only one doing things. And that's dangerous, because then you start to identify yourself by your works. I think this is why there is such an appeal of false gospels or of cults or of other religions, because what they do is reattach works. They reapply the value of that to give you some false sense that you are in control. You are the dictator of your life. But it takes us away from the doctrinal elements of our faith, which is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But even I forgot that somewhere along the way. A couple weeks back after our 
bi-weekly men's morning Bible study at Chick-fil-A, I was met by a man from a cult. And he asked me, what is grace? And I told him what it was. I told him it's unmerited favor. It's God giving us something that we don't deserve. And he said, where is that in the Bible? And I couldn't find it. And then he had an onslaught of an attack on me, making me question my faith. And whether directly or indirectly, this is what he did. He, he made me ask myself really hard, do I actually know what grace is? And I don't mean intellectually in my mind. I know what it is. Ephesians chapter 8, verse 2. Sorry, verse two, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, it is the gift of God by grace, not by works so that no one can boast. But did I really know in my heart grace? Because for the longest time, I just thought it's what I do. It's what I identify with. In ministry, those lines get blurred pretty hard from my personal faith and my job. And so it became for me not about grace, but about works. But is this the attitude of Paul? Once you look with me in verse 4 through 5, is he expressing the anticlimax of life? Is he expressing an overemphasis on works? Is he stating these things with bitter resentment? What does he say? He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in affliction, hardship, calamity, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. Maybe some of you in the sanctuary know what that is, sleepless nights. Hunger. What I find to be of great encouragement in this is in what is being said and who is saying it. So what is being said? If you look with me in this passage, notice something very important, not only about what he is saying, but just look at the passage plainly. You could think of this as his resume. And what do you do in a resume? I'm, I'm, I'm expecting all of us here have jobs. I'm expecting all of us here has filled out a resume at one point or another. What do you do on your resume? You fill out all your skills, your qualifications, all of the things that you're good at, all of the things that elevate yourself. But the Apostle Paul does something very interesting. He mentions afflictions and hardships and calamities and imprisonments and riots, sleepless nights and hunger. Why is he doing this? He leaves this all in here. I mean, he is the one that is writing this, so he must be doing this for a reason. And I think this, this is the reason. He has realized something that you and I often forget, is that oftentimes when we go through unforeseen distractions, we forget that they are not unforeseen by God. You and I may be the means of our own failure. But last time I checked, God uses only failures. So he is boasting about these things. 
because he cannot take credit for it. He is simply working out of the grace of God. And notice who is stating it. What is so beautiful about this account? The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived, he wrote almost all of the New Testament, and he is telling you and me, even he struggles. Even he goes through hardship. You and I are not alone. So, what kept him going? How was he able to see that in the end it was worth it? Point three, the Christian journey is worth it because the time of salvation is here. The hardest question for me to answer as I was preparing for this word, is it worth it? Is it worth it? It's not because I didn't know the answer, but rather because I took it for granted for what it truly meant. I think if you asked me that question about a week ago, is it worth it, I'd just give you the cookie-cutter answers. Yeah, it's worth it. Jesus Christ saved us. The time of salvation is now, yada, 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 yada. But it wasn't here. I had to pull over to the side of the road and look at my map again. And sometimes when you read something in context, it exposes something that you think you already knew, but you realize you really didn't, and it sheds new light, and it gives it the significance that it is due. So if you can look with me in your Bibles to verse 2, it says, For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you didn't know, the New Testament is written in Greek. And the New Testament word is, for salvation, soterios. What does soterios mean? It has a general reference to bodily health, of welfare, recovering after illness, but also deliverance from calamity and victory. Salvation to be brought by the Messiah for the Jews, the release from the foreign yoke in particular, and the recovery of independence. In purely Christian terminology, far fuller in content, the complete recovery of health from the disease of sin and of captivity. But if you notice something very interesting that you would always notice in the New Testament is if you see a little section in quotations that's bracketed off, a sign is that usually is a reference to the Old Testament. So there is a section in verse 2 that is referring to an Old Testament text, which is that text, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And what does it say in Isaiah 49, 8? It says, I have answered you in a time of favor and helped you on a day of salvation and watched over you, given you as a covenant to the people to raise up to the land to give the desolate hereditary property as an inheritance. What is interesting about this is that the Old Testament is not written in Greek. It is written in Hebrew. And so the Old Testament word for salvation is what? Does anyone know? Yeshua. 
Yeshua is the word for salvation. And what does Yeshua mean? Welfare, prosperity, salvation by God. Rejoicing, victory. When you find a treasure, you're like, I want more of it. So I had to finish the whole chapter. And in the verse 6 and 7, right before it, he says, God says, it is too light. What is this word, too light? The Hebrew word is kalal. It can mean trivial, insignificant, a derivative, a, a quick brushing of the bronze. What is he referring to that is too light? He says, it's too light for you to be a servant for me to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations and to be my salvation to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel. So what is he saying? It's too easy for God just to save the tribes of Jacob and of Israel. The intention was to reach the ends of the earth and to save the world. Don't you get it? Our God is the same God of the Old and New Testament. People only view this message to be for the Israelites. But in and through Jesus Christ, our revelation through the new covenant, it is that for Gentiles, for all who are in Christ Jesus are saved because they were foreknown, predestined before the foundation of the world. That means Gentiles were not an afterthought. They were always part of the plan. So what does that mean for you and for me? Every single person in this sanctuary today, everyone that looks like us, everyone in China, all the believers in Africa, all the believers in Ukraine, and any believer in the deep south of Georgia say that we believe in Jesus Christ and are saved by his grace alone. Thanks be to God. Look around you. Look at what God is doing and what he will always do. You see, before he could express this time of salvation, do you know who did this before? Paul Moses did it. Isaiah did it. Elijah did it. All of the prophets, they looked forward, not to what, but to whom? And you had Paul and Timothy and Titus and all of these other apostles and disciples. They looked back, not to what, but to whom? Our centerpiece of salvation is Jesus Christ. And we are in this purely unique time where we know that Christ has died and risen from the grave and we are awaiting his second coming. In the meantime, Paul says that yes, this Christian journey is worth it. In Titus, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have this truth today. Now is the favorable time. It is called the present because it is a gift. If you were to look on your map and see the GPS marker, it would say that you have both already arrived 
and you are still on your way to your destination. What does that mean? Jesus is sustaining you, carrying you, encouraging you, picking you up when you fall, and pulling you when you won't want to go any further. He is praying for you, interceding for you, and making sure that you finish till the end. Maybe you have been serving for years and you've run out of gas and you need a pullover. Or maybe, and I, I say this really with all honesty and with respect, maybe you have not served God's church in a long time. Maybe you are not serving his church, and you have no plans to save or serve his church in the future. And I'm here to tell you that there is no such thing as a non-serving Christian. Maybe it's time for you to wake up from your slumber, believer, and stop taking so many vacations and trips and to start going on missions. We all work hard. You and I the same. Do we deserve that vacation? Absolutely. You have to take time for yourself. But anything in excess can be a bad thing. Have you earned that vacation? Yeah. But the time of salvation is still yet here. So it's a matter of priority. I went to an EM forum recently. It's, if you don't know what that is, basically a retreat for PCA pastors, elders. Thank you for praying for us. I very much needed that uh, time. And it's, it's for interns as well and friends of the PCA. And so we gathered together in Georgia for two days from Tuesday to Thursday. And uh, I got um, huddled up into a small group. It's very much just like a retreat. And so we had people from all around the country. And uh, very blessed to have two brothers, um, Kim Lee, Paul Pham, 51, 52 years old, both serving almost 30 years in ministry. And they serve out of the San Jose area. And what's unique about these brothers are that they are Vietnamese. Uh, and if you didn't know, in the San Jose area, they told us, uh, there are about a million people. And 170,000 are Vietnamese. So they have this huge demographic. And they told us in our small group, only maybe confidently could say about 1,000 are believers. And you could just hear the sigh of burden from everyone else. But you see, here's the thing. They said there's 170,000 Vietnamese, only about 1,000 are Christian, 169,000 more to go. Wow. They have already been serving 30 years, and their mindset is, 
much work still needs to be done. That told me they have a kingdom mindset. And that's hard because we live in our contextual context where we compare with one another, to be completely honest, and we're always trying to scale one another up and accumulate as much as we can have. And what gets left by the wayside is the people that need to hear the gospel. It's challenging for me, too. It is. But wherever you may be, I'm here to tell you, Christian, that Jesus Christ has come. How does your life look differently because of that? And so I'll end with two encouragements, two applications for you that I hope, to take, that I hope for you to take away and uh, apply practically. And here's the first. Pull over to the side of the road. Stop. Find, find a pocket in your day. I don't mean like when you put the kids to sleep, the last thing that you want to do is pray and read your word and you just want to veg out on Netflix and you've just come off of a call with a family member and it stressed you out or you talk with your friends and you're hanging out all night and the last thing you want to do is crack open that book. I mean find a pocket in your day, the best one where you are attentive and you are ready and you are willing to receive the abundant well of grace that is in this book and give it the respect that it is due. Give it the attention and the thinking and your conscience as much as you can. And be specific because if you're not, you're planning to fail. How many conversations I've had with people, read your Bible, they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it when I feel like it, i do it when I have time. The reality is they'll never do it because it's not specific enough. On Monday, 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to read from this to this chapter, I'm going to write down an observation, I'm going to write down an application, I'm going to pray about it. Tuesday, the same thing, 10 to 15 minutes. For that whole week, 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to do this. Next week, I'm going to go from 20 to 25 minutes and do it again. The next week, I'm going to go 30 to 35 minutes. And you have this accumulation of time and of wealth, and you will find you can stay in this work for an hour and 30 minutes, and you literally don't want to be pulled away from it. You want to just stay in it. That is sweet. Find the best pocket of your day. A brother of mine, he said, my life is just better when I'm reading the Bible. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I don't know. It just is. There's something to that. I think part of it is that it puts a new lens on life. From the pulpit this last week, it said that obstacles will not be in vain. They will be worth it. Look with me in verse 8 to 10. As it shows the Christian life really is paradoxical in nature. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown, yet well 
known as dying, and behold, we live as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing. That's what I'm always reminded of when I look at my bank account. Nothing. But when I look in this book, I possess everything and more. Perceived reality, actual reality. The unfortunate thing, though, for us is that these are the things that we see. These are the things we cannot see. But the great blessing in our lives, this is perishable. This is everlasting. My last point for you is very simple. Finish well. Maybe you've been serving and you see no end in sight and you're just on the verge of quitting. You think it's not worth it. It's much easier to live as a non-Christian. And to some extent, it is. But I'm here to tell you as a co-laborer, as a brother, keep going. It's worth it. From last year to the beginning of this year, I have been to one too many funerals. And what it always does is it reminds me, my life really is very short. And if you've ever been to a funeral, I am very accustomed with the process now, is that there's a pastor or there's a family friend that gives a eulogy in the beginning, and after that, there's a time of paying respects if it is an open casket. And so family and friends make a line and say goodbye for the last time. But this one stood out to me. As it was happening, I saw three older men gingerly walk up late to the front row, and they happened to wear military uniforms. And so my friend's grandfather had passed away, and this man had fought in every known modern war. I'm not sure if there was a slight miscommunication, uh, but he was buried in his actual combat gear, in, in camo. But his friends came in their more decorated civilian uniforms. And so afterwards, we paid our respects to him. And uh, they, they came up to the front, those three men, probably in their 80s, 90s. And they draped a Korean flag over his casket. And they stood in a line, and they saluted him for the last time. Well done. Good job. You finished well. We'll see you soon. Are the words that I heard. But in reality, it was as silent as it is right now. 
in perceived reality. In actual reality, where he went was not silent. He was a believer, and he was met by a cloud of witnesses. And he was met by the author and perfecter of his faith that said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have reached your destination. These are the words that I hear, that I long to hear one day. What about you? Let's pray. What can we say, really, but to say thank you for your son, Jesus Christ? Thanks be to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe many of us this morning have forgotten that truth. Help us to be reminded. Help us to stay in that grace a little bit longer. Teach us how we are to speak. Teach us how we are to pray. Give us renewed understanding that we are to be your hands and feet to this broken world. Let our hands not be filled with crowns or achievements or more possessions, but may it be filled with the word of God with hands that are willing to serve. May we not increase our standard of living, but our standard of giving. May we open up our homes, not to build taller fences, but longer tables. May we be a church that reflects the beauty and the wonder and the love of God. Help us to do these things, Lord. Teach us. Rebuke us if you have to. But gently remind us of what you have been given. Thank you for grace. It is truly a gift. It is undeserved. May we respond in this time with worship, with praise that is due to you.